So Lord, as we, God, as we come here today, Father, to worship you, God, to sing songs, to read scripture, to, to fellowship with fellow believers, God, I pray that it all be to your glory. God, soften our hearts, prepare our hearts for this moment. And Lord, help us to focus solely on you. Father, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and you take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and you take away. You give and you take away. Wonderful. Good morning, everybody. We'd like to welcome you here to Faith Family Fellowship. If you're a visitor here, uh, my name is Matthew. I want to extend a welcome to you and ask you if uh, you would look at the pew right in front of you. There should be little cards uh, on it that say visitor, uh, communication cards, I believe. If you're a visitor, we'd love to have a record of you being with us. Ask you if you would grab one of those, fill that out, drop that in the basket on the back walls uh, on your way out this morning. Uh, we greatly appreciate that opportunity. And so a few things to make mention of this morning. Uh, we are in the process of trying to update uh, church directory pictures and, and try to make some of those available uh, of, of membership. And so there is an online sign-up began this morning and uh, will also be next Sunday morning uh, set up to pick a time, go to get a picture of yourself and your family and... Um, and we'll, we'll put them together into, into directories. And so there's an online sign-up for that. I'll make you aware of that. And a few opportunities with Christmas coming soon for, uh, for being able to in, be involved in local ministries and, and in other things across the world. One being Foster Together, that we have a site on campus uh, that is receiving donations that they will distribute as part of Christmas and as a way to be involved there. And also... As we do each year, the boxes on the back wall with Operation Christmas Child. This is a ministry of Samaritan's Purse, and what it is is collecting gifts, new gifts and things, pack it in a box, send it over uh, to somewhere in the world, a local pastor, missionary uh, in, in an area or a church takes these and goes into a community and gives them to children, children of need, uh, and it is an opportunity through these boxes for the gospel to be shared and for the gospel to go into a community that may not have an opportunity, uh, but that door is open through these boxes. And so it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity that is, uh, that is low cost for us in that with this, the gospel goes. And somebody, a church somewhere in the world has the opportunity to share Christ uh, to people who need to hear it. And need to hear of him. And so those are, those are a few opportunities there. And we will dedicate those November 13th, that Sunday morning, and pray over them and over that time. And also, I believe on the back wall, there is a sending arm of the Southern Baptist Convention called uh, Baptist Global Relief. That in a similar way, you can give to that if you would like to. And they will take those monies and specifically give them to different communities and places to meet, meet needs uh, that um, that are there. Also, our weekday preschool 
is collecting canned foods and want to make you one aware of that so you can pray and pray for that effort, but also invite you to take part, that you are welcome as part of the church to, uh, to donate uh, canned foods that will then be brought to Prodigy Pantry down the road that will then distribute those to families uh, in need. And so I want to make you aware of that and invite you uh, prayerfully to consider that opportunity also. And also uh, there is a sign-up in the back for choir looking at the possibility of resuming. It's been a few years. COVID took care of that for us. And so a uh, possibility of resuming choir and to garnish the interest to see uh, if, if uh, there's anyone interested in that, serving in that capacity. There's a sign up on the back. If you are interested, jot your name down and uh, we'll be in contact with you about, about that. Uh, also this week, office hours, church office hours are going to vary. We have some folks going and coming and different things. And so give us a call. If you need something, give us a call. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get you where you need to go. All right? So memorizing scripture, the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Let's look at it this morning and recite it out loud. We'll read through it once. And so this is scripture to memorize. We, we recite it corporately. Uh, as an aspect of our worship, but are, you're encouraged to memory, commit it to memory, etch it into your mind, into your soul, that God's word would be with you and direct you in times of need, and that you would be able to use it in times of temptation. And so let's recite it. Uh, let's recite these verses. Read with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, all heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. I don't have it memorized as well as I thought I did. Mix them up. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, or might. Mix it up again. There we go. So, hear, O Israel, hear. He is one. You shall, an imperative. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. And with all your heart, so your soul, the being of who you are, that your desires would be after God. That you love the Lord not as a response to his authority, which is true. He is the Lord and therefore deserves our attention, our affections, our lives. But we should love him in our desire. We desire to know him, to bring our lives underneath him and in conformity to his will and his ways that it would be the desire of our heart, of our soul, to be consumed by the Lord, to know him. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are the Lord, and that you call us to willing obedience. You very easily could conform us and force us and contrive us into the mold you would have us. But you, out of the loving goodness that you are, you call us, Lord, to repent. You call us to willingly come to you. We are blind in our sin. We must have you reveal who we are and who you are to us. And that you have spoken, you have given your word to us. That this, these two verses are a portion of that, of how you have revealed yourself to humanity. May we recognize your call that we would come to love you, to cherish you, to recognize your authority, but your goodness and your grace. 
that you have been kind and merciful to us. And we don't see that any higher and any greater than in your son, than in you sending him to be our savior, to reveal your goodness and your grace to us and the satisfaction of your justice. So, Father, would you help us this morning? Would you speak to us from your word that we would see you? We would see who you are and that we would see you as lovely and honorable and good as you are. And we would be drawn, Lord, that our lives we would humbly lay them before you. And God, these many things we've mentioned of opportunities coming up, that Lord, would you lead us in them? Would you call your people to different ones that they would be invested and involved in an effort to glorify you and an effort to enjoy you and to love you with all they are and to see that others come to know you and to love you, God? Lord, would you be with each one of them? Would you be with each one of these opportunities, Lord, and lead and guide them and be glorified through them? That they would meet needs that, Lord, the people who who need these things, Lord, would, would be there and we would be able to meet those needs and share who you are with them. And so, Father, we ask your help and your direction and your glory, Lord, that you would be exalted through them and through this time. We thank you and ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship. You're worthy of worship, you're worthy of praise, you're worthy of honor, you're worthy of thanks, you're worthy of worship, you're worthy of praise, you're worthy of honor, you're worthy of
coming of the King. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. You're worthy of worship. You're worthy of praise. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of thanks. You're worthy of worship. You're worthy of praise. You're worthy died in our place, the debt that we owed. And so let's continue to sing and give thanks to the Lord for what he has done. Your blood has 
song um, and this is one that we've done on a Sunday night it's been a long time we did it on a Sunday night but we haven't done it on a Sunday morning this is a song by uh, Matt Papa and Matt Boswell called Christ the True and Better and what I love about this song is it walks through the characters in the Bible it looks at Adam it looks at Isaac it looks at Moses and David and it shows how All of Scripture, the whole of Scripture is the story of Christ. How Christ is the true and better Adam. How he's the true and better Isaac. The true and better Moses and the true and better David. And so as we we come to to look at this song, the words are going to be up on the screen. Um, If you know it, please sing it along. Um, But real quick, I just want to walk through the, the bridge, or the chorus, I mean, so that 
um, so that y'all can sing along, at least with that part. And so the chorus, it's really simple. It goes like this. It goes, In amen, amen, from beginning to end, Christ the story is the glory. Alleluia. Amen. Christ the story, his the glory. It is all to his glory. So as we as we sing this, I, I encourage you to pray through, meditate on these words, um, and think about how all of Scripture is about Christ. Christ the true and better Adam, Son of God and Son of Man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse and rising crushed the serpent's head. In Christ the true and better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb that fearful mountain There to offer up his life Laid with faith upon the altar Father's joy and only Son Their salvation was provided Oh, what full and boundless love in amen, amen, from beginning to end, Christ the story is the glory, alleluia, amen. Christ the true and better Moses Called to lead a people home Standing bold to earthly powers God's great glory to be known With his arms stretched wide to heaven See the waters part in two See the veil is torn forever Cleansed with blood we pass now through And amen, amen From beginning to end Christ the story is the glory Alleluia, amen
Christ the true and better David, lowly shepherd, mighty king, he the champion in the battle, where, O oh, death, is now thy sting. In our place he bled and conquered, crown him Lord of majesty. He shall be enthroned forever, we shall heir his people be. And amen, amen, from beginning to end, Christ the story is the glory, alleluia, amen, and amen, amen, from beginning to Christ the story is the glory. Alleluia. Amen. In Christ the story is the glory. Alleluia. Amen. Father, help us to, to know, to see, Lord, that from the beginning, your plan was to send your Son. Lord, to see through all of Scripture how it is about Christ. And Lord, that we can keep Christ at the center of it. Lord, thank you for your Son and that gift. Father, that we can, Lord, worship you, glorify you, to be called your sons and daughters because of what you've done, not because of what we've done. Lord, thank you for that gift. God, as Matthew comes to bring the word, I pray that you give us ears to hear, but God, more importantly, hearts to understand. Lord, that we can leave this building and we can be your church. God, that we can love those around us well. Lord, soften our hearts and prepare our hearts for this. We love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a Bible. Go to Luke 4. We're going to be in the first 13 verses of Luke 4 while I tell you a story from history. Uh, it was about 1119, 1120 uh, when this group was formed called the Knights Templar. You ever heard of them? Old guys? So, uh, the, the story goes that as the Pope, uh, years before this, calls for the first crusade, and a bunch of Europeans go over to the Mediterranean and go over to Israel and fight uh, the, the Muslims that were in Jerusalem and take back the city. And then as pilgrims would come through and go to, go to Israel, go to the Temple Mount, they were often robbed. It was not a safe journey. And so there was a lot of robbery, lots of issues. And so about uh, 1119, 1120, a group, a group gets together called the Knights Templar. And that's a short 
a short uh, name for a big, long Latin name. And so they, their job is as monks to protect the people in Jerusalem. And so they're housed in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Uh, if you ever go to Israel, there are two, on the Temple Mount, there are two um, houses of worship, so to speak. You have the, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and then on the south side, you have a mosque that I think is like a bronze silvery color. Uh, that was what they believed at that time to be where Solomon's temple was and is there the place uh, where they claimed where their home was, the Knights Templar. And so uh, they, were, they only existed about 200 years. And what made this group unique was they were expert warriors, but they were also monks. And so it's a monastic order of men who uh, loved the Lord and knew truth and knew, knew what God had said and ins- what God has said and inspired, but also were experts in their trade. And so they became a very feared group of people, became a very feared and very effective force, and so much so that some of their practices were kept in secret and led to about 200 years later, they were basically rounded up and all, um, all gotten rid of uh, very forcefully within about 200 years. And so this group of people that were formidable because of their expertise, but also because of their fearlessness in battle, because they knew who the Lord was and they knew where they were going, which entailed a fearlessness in in what they did, led to a fear from others that made them uh, made them go away. And so now you can see that there is still this mystique around this group, this monastic order that has been co-opted by different things like Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code and all this stuff, and still still carry this mystique from it. But the point that I want to make with these this group is their effectiveness in what they did was a witness to their faith. Their their effectiveness came from their position before God in the sense that they trusted him, they knew what God's truth was, and that led them in how they acted and how they lived to be fearless in the war they they did. They I uh, can't think of the right word. Their faith was witnessed by what they did, by how they related, how they lived, and that that inspired fear in others who could not give an answer to it. And that still infi- inspires fear in the world of who were these people? And let's attach all these additional mystical things to them and what they did and that they still exist and they still move the world and all this stuff. Uh, this this additional things, but essentially, this two hundred year monastic order. They trusted God, and that affected how they did. Uh, they did what they did. Okay, so we are looking at Luke four. We're looking at the temptation of Christ, and I'll bring that back. I don't think I, I set that up very well. I'm gonna bring that back in a bit, uh, but we're gonna look at the temptation of Christ. And the, the witness of Christ in this, in his suffering, 
And in these 13 verses of temptation, as the devil comes to him and, and tempts him. And so let's read it first. We'll pray. Then we'll talk about context and we'll look at three points. All right. So would you read with me? Luke 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from, Ju- from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil... And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, You are the Son of God. If, sorry, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the beauty of your scripture, that every bit of what you have inspired is connected. It it displays a consistent message and a consistent view of who you are. This is not human made. this, This would not be the Savior. If man made his own Savior, he would not be Jesus. The humility of this, this man is staggering. God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We thank you for who you are. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes this morning. May we see you. May we come to know you. May you draw us, Lord, in repentance as we have all failed the test. None of us have outlasted the tempter. Every one of us has succumbed to temptation and to trials. And yet Jesus has not. Help us to turn our attention, our focus, and our lives over to your Son. That we would find him a very present help in times of trouble and that we would find him the bearer of grace for those who are called according to your name. So, Father, meet with us and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Luke has given us a lot of detail. So, this is chapter 4, three chapters before. We've seen the birth narrative of John the Baptist and the birth narrative of Jesus. We've seen how, how God inspired into a variety of people that these two men were coming. That John was going to come and prepare the way, and so he comes and teaches and preaches and baptizes uh, Israel so that they will, the Jewish people, will be prepared 
for the Messiah. And then Jesus comes. And we see Jesus coming just before this, a few verses before this, right before the genealogy Luke gives us, that Jesus shows up to be baptized in keeping with all repentance. And so Jesus comes, not a baptism for the remission of sins, not for anything salvific or anything that, 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 uh, that could be construed from baptism, but simply a a example he gives us in him coming that then validates and verifies publicly who Jesus is. And so Jesus is baptized, he comes up, and then the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descends bodily like a dove upon and rests upon Christ, and the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, follow him. Matthew, Matthew accounts, his account says that we should follow and listen to Christ. And so this baptism that occurs, you can imagine that's a pretty high point. That we have the Trinity present. And the Son who has publicly been professed by the Father and then anointed by the Spirit that He is the Son. He is the Messiah. He is God Himself. And so we saw also a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus when He's 12 years old before the baptism, when He's in the temple and He's, he's listening after Passover and talking to the leaders, the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the, the priests who are there, the, the people who know. And they are, they are amazed by Jesus as a 12-year-old boy and His understanding and His questions. And we looked at His divinity and His humanity there that we see within Jesus at this point and throughout that He is completely God and completely man wed together. Not mixed, not, not, um, not, not diluted, and also inseparably. That for eternity, he is God and man. He is complete. And we see that these, this is not a warring of persons. It's not like he has a good side and a bad side, a human side and a God side that's just kind of warring within him. But he is in harmony, in complete harmony between divinity 100% and humanity 100% that are wed into this one person. And we will see this in this temptation. We see it in the genealogy as we see that he is verified as being valid the Savior. That he has the heritage. He fits the legal bill that he is the Messiah. He is the one long expected who would be the seed of Adam, who would be the the son of David who is coming and who would be the second Adam as we just sung, that he is He is this one, and he is validated and verified here in his genealogy, in baptism, and now we're going to see it here in this temptation that he undergoes. And so this might strike you as unique, this temptation. It always has struck me as, this is is weird. He goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and doesn't eat, and then it says he's hungry, obviously, and, and then Satan comes to him and pushes his buttons a bit, and and Jesus does not cave. He does not succumb to the temptation. He, he is tried and proven as that he truly is Christ and he truly is the God he claims to be. He fulfills Scripture. But this, this whole occurrence, this intimate thing that he shares with his disciples that has occurred, it attests, it's kind of, it sets kind of the tone of his ministry. That what we see Jesus, that he is not coming as a political savior. He's not coming as a Messiah who is going to whip up on people. He is coming as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who is coming to serve selflessly. 
Every bit of his life, everything he does is selfless for the service of others and in obedience to the Word and to God the Father. So, let's, uh, as we have read, let's look at the first two verses here of chapter, of chapter 4 and look at how Jesus, he is, what does it say that he is, I'm going to try to circle some stuff on the screen to see if this works. So, he is full, if it works. So, Jesus, he is full of the Holy Spirit. He is full of the Holy Spirit, and he returns from the Jordan. He was what? He was, he was led by the Spirit. Do you see the intentionality within these verses? In that Jesus doesn't just happenstance, he just gets lost and wanders off into the woods, that he is full, consumed, full of the Spirit, and he goes, he is led, he is led by God the Holy Spirit and by the Father into the wilderness. So he goes out into this place for 40 days, and that's an intentional period of time. There are other places in Scripture that this points to, and it'll be clearer when the dialogue, when we get to the dialogue of Satan and Jesus, of what kind of these 40 days, what they reference to, what they point to. Not that they're just a literary reference, but that there's a parallel, and there's specifically a parallel with another son of God that goes before this into a wilderness for a time of period in, in 40, 40 years in that case, who also wrestles with a trial, but who does not stand the trial, but who is in the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure in the trial. And so we see Jesus, he is full of the Spirit, and he is sent, led, directed into the wilderness for this time to be tempted by the devil to be tried by the devil. And so we see, number one here, we see a intentionality to, we see an intentionality, a divine intentionality in Jesus' suffering and in the temptation. That is not accidental. It is not by happenstance. It's not because he gets lost. But this is intended and this is purposeful. That Jesus going here is a purposeful thing. It is intended to show that Jesus, he did not come into the world to exalt himself. That he did not come into the world to exalt and elevate himself, but he came as the lowest of lowly servants to serve humanity, to serve people and to obey his father. He came to serve and to sacrifice. I mean, who better to claim pampering and comfort and all the trappings of the world that it has to offer than God, right? Than the incarnate Son of God. That how about in ourselves when we experience something, when, when we, something goes well, like a plan, a, a plan we have, it happens well, we get a reward or praise or promotion or a raise or something, does it ever go to your head? Does it ever, has it ever gone to your head? Has anything like that ever, ever occurred to where you, you then uh, are more prone to, to doing things, maybe a little more brash, you may, you may let something slip you wouldn't normally say, or you may do something or act upon something you wouldn't normally do because you have this exaggerated uh, perspective of yourself because of success or because of something good happening. Has that ever happened to you? I'm sure it has. It has happened to me, where, where because my plan has worked, I, I feel on top of the world and often leads me into trouble. 
Jesus has just had the Father speak audibly to a crowd and the Spirit come upon him. And yet he, he is led into starvation for 40 days to be tempted and tried. And we never see him exalt himself and do what he could do in this private one-on-one situation. He is humble. He is humble and completely obeys the Father and God's revealed word. What we would do and what we would fail to do, he does not do. He is completely faithful the entire time. Completely rest in the Lord and in God's direction for him. Jesus is far better. He is glorious and high and he is the humble Lord. And so we see as he is tempted here and as Satan says to him, hey, you should make bread. You should come and take these rocks and, and make, make bread out of them. We see that in his, in his decision not to do that, we see that this assault from the enemy displays more about Satan and displays about him and his character along with the character of Christ. And so let's read a few more verses here. Uh, read with me in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So Jesus is hungry, right? 40 days, 40 nights, no food. That would not go well in my life, and it probably would not go well in yours. Um, the point, this is miraculous, the God, the Father, supplies his need. He is, he is 100% like you and me, yet without sin. He is physical, so he has physical needs. He needs to eat food. He needs to drink water. Yet God as Jesus, in his response to this first trial, this first temptation, he verifies to us that God is capable of making us live beyond what science says we're capable of. Because he's the creator. He is the Lord. He can do what he wants. He can make you never eat food again and you keep going. Because he's, he's God. And because it's all in his control. And so, so, so God supplies Jesus' need as Jesus, he trusts. And he walks by faith in this, trusting that the Father is taking care of him. And so the devil shows up and says, if, notice this, if, if you are the Son of God. And this, this of there is really important because what he is doing in, in the Greek is he is presenting the emphasis is on a question of his identity. If you really belong to God, then you should do this. If it is true that you are God's, if you, if you really are the Son of God, then, then just do this. You have this rock here that looks like a loaf of bread, just make it bread. It's just you and me, bud. Make it bread. You need the food. And if it's true that you belong to him, you can do it. The deceiver, he's shrewd here. This should point us back to the Garden of Eden and the same temptation we see with Adam and Eve as, hey, take a look at that. It looks good, doesn't it? God, he ain't got you. You should, you should take care of that yourself. And so Jesus, in this temptation... The, his identity and who he is is brought directly to question 
that he simply can command this stone to become bread, and it would. And we see this occur later in his ministry, right? He's completely capable of this. He is, he's God. He, can, he could do this. And yet, he doesn't step out of he doesn't step out of the position of faith and dependence upon the Lord ever. Even though this is capable, he's capable to do this, he is not going to use his authority and his power to be self-serving. It's not, he's not frivolously going to use what he could do and what is intended to glorify God in order to meet a felt a need there. A legitimate need, yes, but a need that God is supplied and taken care of. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? What, what we have happening here is he says then, Jesus answered him with Scripture, it is written, as you see, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. And if we go to the Gospel of Matthew, it adds the rest of the verse, uh, man shall not be, live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that he's referencing a section in Deuteronomy. He's pointing back to the scripture there that man does not live by what is just physical, but it is by God that we are alive. It is by the very word of God, by the Lord, that we live, move, and have our being. So the food doesn't keep us alive. It keeps energy in our bodies and things moving and operating, but ultimately it is by God's grace and His goodness and His provision that we are here. That we are, we are alive and we have life. And Jesus, in response to this, He responds with God's Word, saying that it is the Lord that gives life. And He trusts Him. So He responds here to this first one, this first temptation. And then let's look here that we have a second temptation. This second temptation, the devil takes Jesus somewhere. Sounds like he takes him up high in a mountain somewhere, and he then shows him all these kingdoms in a moment of time. So you see all this stuff in a moment of time, and he tells him that you can have this if you just worship me. Bow down, worship me, and I give it to you. You'll have it all. You'll have all the authority have all the praise, all the glory of the ruler of these places. And so we have, we have this temptation. And to make sense of this, to make sense of these two temptations of live by bread alone and then come and worship him, the devil in his shrewdness and in the precision of his testing in these questions, he's intending to strike doubt into Jesus. He's, he's intending to point Jesus to a shred of, of doubt that God is with him and that the scriptures are trustworthy. That God has spoken and his promise is true and that he can be trusted. But Christ in his response, he responds with scripture, but he also rightly responds with scripture pointing us to a few things. And before we go uh, further, I want to look at one verse in 1 John as we see a pattern. Not only is, is Satan being shrewd in how he is pinpointing in a physical need Jesus hadn't eaten, and so he is weak, he needs food, and so Satan tempts him in that area of need that is a legitimate need. But he also, he also 
tempts him in manner that is, there's a pattern to it. And so 1 John gives us a little glimpse of this, as it says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We have these three aspects of the, of the world, of the temptation of Satan that hasn't changed. We can point to the Garden of Eden and see it happening there, and it happens throughout Scripture. And we see here there are three temptations in, in, the, in the wilderness here with Jesus that we can connect this and parallel this here in 1 John that Satan, he has a pattern. He has a pattern in how he tempts people and how he will tempt you and me to sin. And he gives these three here, and I just want to point us to that, that we would not be deceived and we would not take it for granted and that we would be aware, that church, that we would be aware of the enemy. We would be aware that there is an enemy and that God has spoken to us and God may allow us to be tempted by him. We're told in James 1 to count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing your faithful truths endurance. That he tells us to take joy when we come under trial. When there is, there is difficulty in our life, and we see it throughout Scripture, here one in the life of Jesus, but in other places where God tests his people to prove their faith, to grow and mature them. And so we see here in this, in this verse here in 1 John, to jump back to 1 John, we see to point these temptations and to connect them here, we see that as the world being in the control of the devil, he has won the desires of the flesh, that we have the bread, he's hungry, the desires of the flesh, of the needs of his, his body, that that desire to just take care of self being one and two desires of the eyes, we see that he carries him on this precipice and says, hey, look at all this stuff. Look at all these things you can have if you worship me, the devil says. And so he gives them these things, these desires of the eyes that if you want this, come on. I, I'll give it to you, Satan says. I'll give it to you. It'll be yours if you trust in him and forsake the Lord God. And then we see the last one, the pride of life, which is in this next little section. And so before we get there, before we go to 4, 9 through 13, I just, I, I want to encourage you to not, to not ignore that there is an enemy. To not ignore that there is an enemy of the church that is present. Not to be fearful and terrified, but to respect the reality that we do not inhabit a world that is in our control. We don't inhabit a world that we can just passively think everything's going to work out for me. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be aware. I don't have to take care of myself. I don't have to discern whether this is right or wrong. It's all right. It's in my control. Do not, do not walk haphazardly and headlong into the world thinking it's fine. You don't have to walk, believer, in fear because of Christ. 
And we'll see that here in this next, the end of this, that Jesus has, has decimated the devil. He's taken care of him. He wins. He wins over Satan and over the devil. And that God uses him for his purposes in spite of the devil. But don't be, don't be frivolous. Don't uh, be unaware of what God has done and who he is. And that he, by his grace, has given us the son that we would be able to stand atop temptation. We would be able to stand and outlast it. Not that we are perfect, but he's given us the tools in Christ. All right, let's continue on. The, the, third, the third point here is that Christ, the second Adam, he does not succumb to sin. He rejects the temptation from the enemy, asserting his perfect authority and true sinless perfection. I know it's a mouthful. I know it's a mouthful. But we see in these last few sections, these la- this last temptation, this third temptation, is Satan, he quotes from Isaiah, from Psalm 91 here, and he says that as he takes him to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. The angels will take care of you. They'll pick you up. Don't worry about it. He will command his angels from Psalm 91 and they will guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting scripture, right? It's good. He must be right. He's quoting the Bible. Yet he omits a few words in between this where he says, and... There are a few words and the context of the psalm that Satan conveniently doesn't give attention to. He conveniently forgets it's there. And so, in fact, he says that in between, says that God will will allow you, will take, God will not, he will command his angels to guard you in all of your ways. And the focus of the psalm is a general promise that God takes care of his people, that he is faithful to his promises, and that he will take care of his church. This psalm is not specifically messianic, a promise given directly to Jesus that this is what's going to happen, but it is a general goodness of God that he takes care of his folks. And so Satan says... I'm going to pull this out and apply it right here to get what I want to happen. So Jesus, of course, he's Christ. He knows. He knows what's happening. And he says, he says that Jesus answered him, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. All three of the places that Jesus quotes from are from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy is... The repetition is the second law. It is where Moses, with the people who have spent 40 years in the wilderness, who have wandered around, Moses before his death is coming to say, this is what God has said. You now stand at the end of these 40 years because because you rebelled against God. 
that you said, no, I will not trust God as God provides, brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, brings them into the promised land. And they say they're too big. The people are too large. We can't do it. God, you must be wrong. There's got to be another way. And their rejection, their unbelief towards God yields yields them wandering through the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies and the next generation then has the opportunity to walk into the promised land by faith. And Moses is saying to Israel in Deuteronomy, this is what happened. Choose to obey God. God is faithful. He has said, as we have memor- we are memorizing in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, that He is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That this God who has done these things, trust Him. Trust in Him. He will provide and take care of you. Israel failed. Jesus does not As Adam failed before Satan in his temptation, in his trial, and as Israel, millions of people who saw God do the ten miraculous things in Egypt to bring them out of slavery, and he brings them through the Red Sea and destroys the enemy, they then say, no, God, you're not big enough. You can't do it. Jesus is not like us. After 40 days of suffering and starvation and wandering alone, he remains faithful. He is tested. He is tried. He does not sin. He does not succumb. The very tempter, the author of lies is before him and he rejects. He does not fall, but he is faithful and he always is. We have a Savior who is faithful. We have a Savior who is perfect, who is pure, complete, wanting nothing. We have a Savior who is God Himself, who created and sustains all all things and sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for His people. This Jesus who who was here as He quotes the Scripture, as He says that Israel failed and He does not, He has believed, He has obeyed, He has fulfilled what every person before Him and after Him has failed to. What we have failed to. None of us has, has stayed the test. At some point, at some place, we have failed the test of obedience to God. Yet, Jesus never did. He defeats the enemy. He defeats Satan. And he suffers through it. It is the mission of God in Christ to bring about salvation. To serve people. To serve humanity. And we see him do that. So let's go, let's finish up. Romans 5, 1 through 5. I want to Look at these verses to kind of sum up here this, this word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the adversarial relationship between Jesus and the devil? There is not peace with God naturally. 
Only in Christ do we have peace with the Lord. Are we at peace with God? It is simply by Him. And so, sorry, my iPad's rebelling. So, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out on us into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus suffered 40 days without any food, without any water, alone, solitary. And then the devil comes to him, suffering. He is tried. He is tested. He is not found wanting. God does not promise a life empty of suffering, a life full of good things. He promises that he will take care of us. He will take care of his people for those who have been saved by his grace, he will look after them and provide for them, but he will use difficulties. He will use suffering in life to bear fruit personally, but also to witness to his goodness, to display the goodness of God. You may not know why things happen in your life. You may not know why this terrible circumstance happens. Why you find yourself in this situation. Like Job, who Satan, in a similar fashion, strikes, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know, but God intends it for good and makes good out of it. So that we have a witness of faith, a witness of God through Job. That God is faithful to his promise and God is with his people. We see the reality of the testimony of the believer in suffering, that God intends for us to make it through life depending upon Him even when things don't go well, but to count it all joy, trusting that He will produce endurance and that as we walk through a difficult circumstance by faith, trusting in him he will mature and grow us and display his goodness through us as we trust in him that because we know him because we have trusted in him because we have life in christ that we then know that whatever happens now is not it but that we have promise in eternity to be with him because christ he he was faithful Because he destroyed the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4. That he was made like us, yet without sin, that he would destroy the enemy and he would destroy sin and death so that no matter what happens in life, we can have hope in Christ. We can have hope in him that he has made it, he has outlasted it, he has survived, he suffered for us that we could be made whole whole and be forgiven of sin to those who come to him by faith and in repentance do you know christ do you know him is this 
the Lord who has given his life on your behalf, that you would be forgiven. That you would be given peace before God because of Christ on your behalf. You have an opportunity this morning, if you don't, if you don't know him, if you've not trusted in him, if you've not turned away from sin and selfishness and turned fully to God, recognizing his authority, his goodness, his grace, and that you belong to him, that he made you to depend upon him and that he must save you. It is appointed under heaven only by the name of Christ that we can be saved. It is only by him. It is only by Jesus and what he has done. Have you trusted in him? God's word calls us to make that decision, to trust in him, to repent of sin. And this can be the morning, the time, the day. The Lord is drawing you to that. Also, believer, how do you look at suffering and trials in your life? I think there are two we see in Scripture, but we see a trial where God tests one's faith. And then we see a temptation to sin. We see the witness of the Spirit leading Jesus that brings Jesus to this place of of difficulty and trial to validate and to display who he truly is, that we have a testing that God allows in the life of the believer, and that often happens through suffering. And then we have the other side where we have the enemy who is bringing about temptation, pushing externally, saying, hey, you need to sin. You need to do this. This is better than God. And so believer, do you see suffering as in the hand of God, and that God would use it in your life for His glory and your good? How do you look at it? Are you able to rejoice because He is faithful? Because He is good? I hope so. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You. God, I thank You that You, for the joy set before You, Lord Jesus, You endured the cross despising the shame. That, Lord, we could have hope. We could have life. And so, Father, may we be so bold to draw near your throne of grace this morning. May we recognize the the cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, Lord, that we, Father, would, would trust in this Savior who has come and who will return. Father, I thank you that you sent your son to serve. How wonderful and incredible it is that Christ, he suffered and he served. He didn't come to be glorified. But that in his obedience and in his humility, that you have glorified him high above all. So may we be drawn to you. Drawn to the Lord Jesus that... Lord, our lives would be consecrated and humbled and given to you. That you would use us, you would be pleased with us. And that, God, we would find purpose, we would find life in your Son, the bread of life. We thank you and ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. And so.